Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other Christian leaders for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology, and Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Now, we also have a special guest today. Um, Many people in the RTS Washington community will know of him. Uh, His primary and most important role is teaching systematic theology at RTS Washington. But in his free time, he's also president and James Woodrow Hassel, Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary at RTS Orlando. Uh, Dr. Scott Swain has been a part of the RTS family since 2006 and has been a great contributor to the study of systematic theology, particularly in recent years in the area of Trinitarian theology. He has two important books that have come out this year that we need to draw your attention to. First of all is this somewhat magisterial Oxford Handbook of Reformed Theology that's co-edited with Mike Allen. And if you don't have that, I'd encourage you picking it up. If you're one of those folks who are uh, interested in Reformed Theology and its development and its, uh, its, its, its framework for how to approach some of these most important systematic theological questions. And also he's the author of The Trinity, An Introduction, part of the short studies in systematic theology that was published by Crossway just recently. And so we're gonna be kind of focusing more on this second part, the second book that we're talking about, the introduction to the Trinity. But first, let me welcome you, Dr. Scott Swain. Thank you, good to be here today. It's great to have you. So what I'd like to do is start off with a little bit about yourself. First of all, what brought you to the area of Trinitarian studies? What, what was it? What was the need in the church? What was the kind of the, the personal story that brought you to spending so much of your academic work on Trinitarian scholarship? Yeah, well, I don't know if this is quite the first answer, but the first verse I ever remember my parents teaching me was John 3.16, and it would have, uh, I would have learned it in the King James Version, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I remember having no idea what only begotten meant when I learned that verse. And so I suppose I've been trying to figure that out my whole life. But in terms of probably more immediate motivations, when I went to seminary, my uh, first seminary class was Church History One, and we had a professor who was committed to having us read primary sources in church history. We read Athanasius on the Incarnation, and as you guys know, the argument there is really about demonstrating not just the, the meaning of the Incarnation in accomplishing our salvation, but really how the incarnation is about extending God's triune life to us and bringing us into fellowship with him as his sons and daughters. And so to catch a vision of how the Trinity is not just an important doctrine, but how central it is to the gospel, I think that's what initially got me excited about that and uh, really drove me to want to study it further as I got into academic work. In the introduction to your book, you talk about systematic theology as kind of working with and developing the grammar and the lexicon. You use that kind of language metaphor, mm-hmm. the grammar and the lexicon of how the scripture presents God as triune, the blessed Trinity. And you talk about working within that framework to kind of accomplish these three goals. You want to form Christian judgment about the Trinity. You want to shape our capacity to receive and respond to the Trinity. And you talk about wanting to promote this kind of the worship element of it. I, I suspect to promote fellowship with the Trinitarian God. Why are those three things, those three goals so important for the church? That's part of my larger understanding of what systematics is ultimately about as uh, a discipline that's grounded in scripture, committed to the interpretation of scripture. 
we want to gain fluency in what scripture teaches. We want to uh, be formed by scripture uh, at the heart of the promise, the new covenant is that the words of God will not only be written on the sacred page, but they'll be written in our hearts, will be transformed from the inside out. And so there has to be a formative uh, dimension. Uh, but then the ultimate goal of systematic theology is to know God, to have communion with him. And so as, as that's the kind of broader way I think about systematic theology, I wanted to write this book to help us to think about the Trinity from the same perspective. And from my vantage point, um, and, and, and to you know, refer back to the grammar analogy, I think we'd gotten to a place in our broader evangelical and reformed world where we had lost touch with certain very significant aspects of the grammar. Um, we'd forgotten how to speak Christianese, if you will, uh, when it comes to the Trinity. And so I wanted to write something that would help people key back into basic biblical teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. Is that something you use? I mean, this whole um, recent kind of movement, recent last 10 years or so, right? This movement back to re retrieval, right? Or, or resourcement of historical Christian teaching on a variety of different topics. Is, is that, is that kind of what you're referencing? Cause you've definitely been, uh, you know, a voice in that movement. So the idea behind retrieval is kind of a twofold judgment. One, there's a contemporary pastoral judgment about our context that maybe we've lost touch with something important. The second judgment is that there might be resources in the broader communion of saints, either in the past or resources we're less familiar with, which could help us. But at the end of the day, the, the goal behind retrieval is not just to kind of geek out about historical theology. It's about to find help in becoming better readers of scripture. And so that's definitely uh, part of what I've wanted to do in this book is acquaint folks with historic reading patterns, really, um, that I think are better than some of the other ones that are on the table today. I think that's a really helpful reminder, Scott, and this is such a great and useful introduction to the Trinitarian thought of really orthodoxy, right? And I think what's so helpful about this book is you actually talked also about the doctrine of divine simplicity and also the unity of singularity of God and the fact that God is not composed of parts. There is no distinction in him between genus and species, substance and accidents. And it's interesting to me that one of the things that we've forgotten perhaps today is that the doctrine of the, simpli of the simplicity of God and the triunity of God actually went hand in hand, right? And I think lots of contemporary authors, even within the evangelical world today, would like to use the doctrine of the Trinity to go against the divine simplicity, as if Trinitarianism is basically a stop to an articulation of divine simplicity, because Trinitarianism is relational, but divine simplicity is not. So could you maybe speak into that kind of error and how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Um, you can read folks both in the discipline of theology, uh, but also, as you well know, in philosophical disciplines who will, you know, be talking about the Trinity. And then they'll ask the question, is divine simplicity even consistent with this? And it's, it's from a historical perspective, it, it's, it's mind-blowing that the question would come up because historically, Orthodox Trinitarian theologians rightly viewed challenges to divine simplicity as a challenge to the Trinity. And this is, I mean, Francis Turton, for example, explicitly says the reasons that Socinians, a, a 17th century school of thought that challenged many features of Orthodox teaching, he says the reason that Socinians go after divine simplicity is because they're anti-Trinitarians. And so what the, what the tradition understood was that divine simplicity is really central to monotheism. But in the context of the doctrine of the Trinity, it's really essential to saying that each person of the Trinity is fully the one God, right? There, there aren't degrees of deity where the Father might be a higher level of deity than the Son. Uh, deity can't be partialed out. Um, in a strict sense, uh, 
simplicity says deities like pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. Um, and, and so it was viewed as a very central feature of Orthodox Trinitarian teaching. That's right. You know, when you take a look at, for example, you mentioned Athanasius, one of the arguments that Athanasius actually points up was that the reason why he affirmed eternal generation of the son is because the father never became the father. The reason why the son was eternal is precisely because the father was eternally father. There was the pure actuality of God, if one put it in later terms, perhaps, is shared between the three persons. So I wonder, could you, teasing that further into why is it that so many contemporary uh, uh, theological scholarship of this have been so, have, have so lost this Trinitarian grammar of thought that's actually very much in common that you see this in ancient medieval and reformed thinking, but really today, suddenly it's not really there anymore. Yeah. I think there's a few different reasons and it kind of depends upon who you're asking about. So, you know, broader 20th century theology uh, when there was something of a revival of Trinitarian theology, that revival didn't necessarily occur on the same foundations that the doctrine historically been developed. So rather than deriving the doctrine of the Trinity from the whole council of God, viewing Trinitarian theology as first and foremost an exegetical matter um, rather than anything else, you know, contemporary theology wanted to start with a certain understanding of history, uh, a certain approach to knowledge that would have been quite different um, than church fathers, medieval doctors, uh, reformed Orthodox folks. And so that led to kind of very different Trinitarian conclusions. And Steve Holmes, in his book on the kind of history of the doctrine, actually says that modern Trinitarian theology has very little to do with um, kind of what was standard Orthodox Christian teaching for, for most of church history. If you get closer to home to evangelical and reform circles, I think that the, the warping tendencies were coming from a maybe slightly different area. You remember in the 90s, one of the big debates uh, among evangelicals had to do with uh, the nature of male-female relationships and how should we think about the way men and women relate to each other in the context of the family, in the context of the church, and then especially within, uh, with respect to the issue of ordination. And as those debates got pretty hot, as tends to happen, you know, both sides are looking for the strongest arguments they can find in support of their position. Well, both sides started bringing the Trinity into these gender debates. And uh, the result on one side was to start defining the distinctions between the persons differently than the tradition had defined those distinctions between the persons. And that led to certain, I think, profound revisions in the doctrine of the Trinity, not only regarding the persons, but even related to this issue of divine simplicity. And I'd be happy to kind of get into that further as the group would like to. I was curious about... Uh, kind of thinking about your two your two books here, right? You've got the Trinity book and you've got the the Reformed theology book. Um, to cross the streams, what are some of the kind of unique contributions of Reformed theology to Trinitarian orthodoxy? I, I'm kind of thinking with this this idea of retrieval and the historic confession of Trinitarian orthodoxy across the ages. Is there anything salutary that the Reformed have have contributed, non-innovative, but, but helpful? That's a great question. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraph two, chapter three, where it gives its brief statement on the doctrine of the Trinity, that is, from my perspective, a very uh, vanilla kind of summary of the doctrine. If you look into the kind of the background of what's going on at the Westminster Assembly at the time, there are actually quite significant debates about how to understand things like the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son. And uh, the Westminster divines could have said a lot more than they said, and they could have said some much more specific things than they said. And the Irish articles, for example, had said much more extensive things about the doctrine of eternal generation. But it's clear that the divines made a choice to, to give a 
very vanilla, I would say, Reformed Catholic statement of the doctrine. That doesn't mean that the Reformed tradition has no contribution to make. Um, You do see coming out of Calvin a a keen um, emphasis on defending the self-existence of the Son, and Calvin has a perhaps slight slightly modified view of the doctrine of eternal generation as a result of that. There are some after Calvin who even modify it even more. But what's fascinating is even if you look across the Reformed tradition at various views on that particular issue, and there are various views, um, even on those who kind of hold to what I would say is the the mainstream small c Catholic tradition, as, as Westminster kind of states, you do have, even among those folks, an increased emphasis on the self-existence of the Son. So this is true of Turretin, who doesn't necessarily take Calvin's view or the view of, of some of the others who go a little bit beyond Calvin. But even in Turretin, he wants to emphasize that the fact that the Son is eternally generated by the Father in no way detracts from his metaphysical self-existence. And so that's a, that's a, a very positive and good um, influence coming out of the Reformed tradition. The other thing I would say, um, and, and this is a even a debated topic in our circles, but I see it as a positive development, the Reformed doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Now, while that's a doctrine that relates to soteriology, what the doctrine does, in my opinion, is it places soteriology on a really strong Trinitarian footing. And more than that, it actually places Christology, the person and work of Christ, on a really strong Trinitarian footing. And so um, the way I sometimes will talk about this in our soteriology classes, you know, most fo- folks are familiar with the concept of ordo salutis, the order of salvation, and talking about how the Spirit applies uh, the fruits of Christ's work to us through union with Christ and so forth. When they come to seminary, they start learning about Historia Salutis, right? We care about redemptive historical interpretation, and, and they come to realize, oh, it's not just about the Spirit's application of these benefits to me. It's about what happened outside of me in history, in Christ's incarnation, his death, his, his resurrection, his exaltation, and so forth. Well, the Pactum Salutis is really the, the eternal source of both of those things, Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis. And it helps to see that, right, from the, the history of redemption to the application of salvation, the triune God is working out this wonderful purpose of grace, which was given to us, Paul says, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, and so I think that's a really rich contribution of Reformed theology to Trinitarian theology. And again, it's not necessarily to Trinity proper, but it is to the Trinitarian nature of salvation. That's, uh, that's really helpful, and I think it goes to a long way to the, the kind of criticism of Christianity, that it's just a, a shrill for Greek uh, philosophical thought, uh, the, the idea of a, a God as pure abstraction. We have at, at root, as, and you see it emphasized in, that, in the Pactum Salutis, God as covenantal, God as relational, both essentially, but then also relationally with us. As, Absolutely. As, as his creatures. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what's really helpful in this discussion as well is, like you said, Scott, this hermeneutical concern of getting back to history so that we could become better readers of scripture, that theological categories are useful yeah. to reading the Bible. And as using theology, therefore, as a starting point, you know, thinking about your comment about evangelicalism and their concern about ordination and reading that back into the triune God that's really getting the method the other way around, isn't it? It's not starting with anthropology that we get to Trinity, but rather we should begin with theology to get back at scripture. So I'd love to hear more about that concern to use theology to read the Bible. And if anything, what biblical foundational exegetical blocks would you offer perhaps in order for us to articulate the doctrine of Trinity? Which biblical texts would you go to? And, and how do we see, therefore, theology helping us reading these biblical texts? One of the things I appreciate in, in, in a person like Herman Bavink, um, Gray, to, to elicit your approval, um, is you know, the way he talks about systematic theology as essentially a 
God-centered biblical interpretation. And you take uh, a verse like Romans eleven thirty-six, of him, through him, to whom are, to him are all things, to him be glory forever. This is how Bavink and really the Reformed tradition in front of him, and, and going back, as you know, though, to Thomas Aquinas and, and a number of medieval doctors, this is how they understood theology. It, everything is related to the doctrine of God, right? All other doctrines are from him, through him, and to him. And so if we're talking about male-female relations, if we're talking about ordination, if we're not setting these other things in relationship to the doctrine of God, there's a sense in which we're not really treating these things biblically. We're treating them atomistically. Uh, we're treating them in a reductionistic kind of way. Well, when it comes to thinking about the Trinity in this way, then, of course, the doctrine of Trinity is a, is a specification of the doctrine of God, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And one of the things that has really struck me, um, even in, honestly, the last year, some research I've been doing on not only hermeneutics, but the emergence of the rule of faith and the Apostles' Creed is, you know, you look at already in the second century, when someone like Irenaeus wants to do biblical theology, right, when he wants to summarize the main thrust of Scripture's message, he inevitably does it in a Trinitarian shape, right? And the earliest forms of kind of baptismal confession of faith that we see, baptismal creeds, they have a Trinitarian shape, right? Three article creeds. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit and so forth. Well, one of the things that has really stuck out, stuck out to me recently is when scholars of the development of the Apostles' Creed development of the rule of faith, talk about these things. They started talking about a building block model in terms of how the creed developed. And, and one of the main building blocks they always introduce in this discussion is Matthew 28, 19, which is Jesus' command, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's fascinating about that to me, and this is where the it's gotten me thinking kind of a new direction recently is that when you look at a text like Matthew 28, 19, this is a place where scripture summarizes scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, Matthew 28, 19 comes at the end of a gospel that begins after narrating the circumstances of Jesus' birth. It begins with a baptism. And what do we see at that baptism? You see the father speaking from heaven this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You see the spirit descending in the form of a dove. You have all of the background with Isaiah there, who's talked about the forerunner, who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And this is doing something interesting of identifying Jesus with Israel's Lord and so forth. And throughout the whole gospel, you've got a presentation of Jesus as God's lordly son. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's performing these miracles and he's giving these teaching and ultimately he's dying on the cross. Well, the baptismal command of Matthew 28, 19 is in a sense a short summary of everything the gospel has been trying to tell us about what, who Jesus is and about what he came to do. Well, the, the thing that, that has struck me recently is Augustine when he talks about the ABCs of the Christian faith, everything that we need to know to, to be a good disciple, he talks about the, the dual love command that you also have in the Synoptic Gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. He talks about the Lord's Prayer, which summarizes the basic outlines of prayer, but then he talks about the creed. Well, the creed is an essentially, it's a distillation of the baptismal command of Matthew 28, 19, to which other biblical texts have been added. So 1 Corinthians 15, summaries of the gospel and so forth. And in all that, to get back to, to the original question is this, when scripture itself wants to summarize who our God is, right? When scripture wants to, to bring the different threads of the unfolding revelation of God and the works of God together, it brings them together in a Trinitarian way. And, and the early church understood this, right? And the early church provided Trinitarian summaries of Scripture. And so, again, it, 
it's a striking thing that that doesn't tend to be the way we summarize scripture today. We don't tend to give these triadic summaries. And, and I think it may signal that we've lost um, something in terms of the way we read the Bible. Along those lines, do you think that part of the reason is due to a more Christ-centered, gospel-centered approach to ministry? And I'm trying to phrase this carefully because obviously we can't separate the gospel, the Trinity, and so forth. But as you know from trends and Christ-centered approaches to reading the Bible and especially public proclamation, sometimes definitely the spirit is lost in these reflections. If you, if you listen to a lot of these sermons. And so do you, how do you think that this emphasis on gospel-centered ministry, which is the popular lingo and Christ-centered hermeneutics might be inadvertently contributing to a loss of the Trinity? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this too, but um, you know, no one can be against Christ-centered preaching, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like if, if you come out against Christ-centered preaching, it's hard to, to kind of win um, from that starting point. I, I think my worry about some of what we see out there is not that it's Christ-centered, but that it's giving us a kind of reductionistic frame within which to view Christ. And so a lot of times by Christ-centered preaching, people mean justification-centered preaching. Well, justification is one of the very important benefits that Christ has won for us through his active and passive obedience and so forth and so forth. But it's not the only thing he's won for us, right? Or it's atonement-centered preaching. And again, the, the cross is our boast, right? Galatians 6. But the cross is not even the the, the only thing that Christ has done for us in his work. And so what I think happens in, in some of our Christ-centered preaching is that we just, we get a reductionistic frame for thinking about Christ. And again, this is where Trinitarian theology, this is where a creedal framework is so much more helpful because it really provides a way of seeing the fullness of who Christ is and what Christ has come to do, right? He is the eternal son of the father. And as such, he enjoys uh, the position of son in the unfolding household economy. <laughs> he is our incarnate brother, right? He has made atonement for us, but now he, he reigns and he's poured out the Holy Spirit and, and he's actually working right now at his father's right hand. And so I think the Trinity can expand our horizons and help us to, to appreciate more fully uh, the significance of Christ's work. And, and honestly, this is one of the, the main things I tried to elaborate in the last chapter of my book is just how a, a Trinitarian frame can help us to see that even our salvation is ultimately ordered to and directed to the glory of Christ and this great outworking purpose of the Father to glorify the Son and make him the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and and, and, and that he might have preeminence in all things and so forth, right? Yes, Christ died for us. Yes, Christ became incarnate for us. But, but ultimately, we were redeemed for Christ's sake, right? That we might be, that the Father might present a bride to his beloved Son. And so I think the Trinity can give us a richer and deeper Christ-centered uh, interpretation, a richer and deeper Christ-centered preaching. That's so helpful. One of the kind of the concerns I often have from a more hermeneutical soteriological angle talking through the new Testament is that we have such a truncated view of the gospel. And actually what I'm kind of hearing from you and, and, and understanding better now is the Trinity gives us do doctrinally, the Trinity actually expands our horizons of what the gospel means. It's not just a tone. Well, it's not just forgiveness of sins. It is, the presence of the Father through the Spirit. It's it's this this bigger, more cosmic view of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, so I was up in DC, as you know, a few weeks ago teaching our our soteriology class. And the way I introduced that class is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And my argument is that Trinitarian benediction 
gives you a gigantic, massive framework for thinking about soteriology, right? It's rooted in the Father's eternal love. It's accomplished in the, the self-giving grace of Christ that though he was rich, he made himself poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. But then it's aimed at the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which is where the church comes in and the renewal of, of all things. You know, a lot of us kind of stop in our talk of the gospel with Christ's death or maybe with Christ's resurrection. And we forget that those things have a point, <laughs> which is a gathering and perfecting of the church. So, yeah, that's absolutely, um, I think, what the Trinity can do for us. I remember a conversation we had in Orlando, Scott, and, and for those who don't know, we, we used to have offices next to each other, which meant that in pre-Twitter days, we could give each other our hot takes on whatever was going on in the world around us. And, um, but I remember at one point having a conversation where as a, a kind of a biblical theology guy, having this conversation about, you know, how do we guide students who are going to be preaching and teaching regularly to teach this big picture of what Jesus is accomplishing. And I, and I think I, I, I'm, you know, you can tell me if I'm remembering this wrong. I think you pointed me to this first and I've since pointed it to many students, but in, in uh, Ursinus's Heidelberg catechism, where he reflects on how Christ is mediator. Um, I think that's the question, right? And he goes through this list of the things that Christ does, and it's so far ranging, you know, yeah. and justification and atonement is part of it. And that's a big part of it, right? But there's, there's so much, you can't help but be Trinitarian if that's what you mean by being Christ-centered, right? Because you're just, you see the involvement of the whole Godhead in our lives, right? And so as we're preaching, I often tell students, you know, take that, go take that chapter, and sit with that and ask, is my text teaching Christ in this way, in this way, in this way? And that actually helps you have this very far-ranging view of, uh, of a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Heidelberg 1 you're referring to. Uh, my only comfort in life and death, right? I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to list, not only has he fully paid for all my sins, right? Right. But he, he watches over me. He preserves me by his spirit, he makes me, you know, he assures me of my salvation, makes me fully ready to live for him. And because I belong to him, I'm sure that the father works all things together for me. I mean, you, yes, yeah. that one little statement, right, which is, is right. A, a, of such kind of poignant interpersonal relevance. I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. It nevertheless puts it in this glorious Trinitarian framework um, and yeah, that, and a sense of the day is like, yeah, if everybody could just preach a gospel as big as Heidelberg one, we'd be in a lot better shape, I think. Your, your comment about Matthew 28, 19 earlier, uh, I found so fascinating, uh, this idea of the, uh, of the Trinity as sort of a creedal summary of the teaching of Scripture. In, in one sense, as a biblical theology guy, that's exactly what biblical theology tries to do is sort of what is that center message? It's been so challenging because so many have been uh, proposing different ideas. I have often thought, I must confess, that that's almost impossible from a systematic standpoint because, you know, as some mentioned earlier, this idea that we try to be Christocentric, you know, from a systematic standpoint, you know, our doctrine of Christ is only one of many doctrines uh, that sort of forms a construct. As we were just talking about it, though, the benefit of biblical theology, or at least one of the strengths of it, has always been the fact that it kind of leads to the centrality of Christ, his death and resurrection, that leads us into worship, and that one of the benefits of preaching Christocentrically, it's, it's sort of the doxological telos, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, even now, as you were kind of talking about the, the Trinity and a Trinitarian analysis on our salvation, you know, you, I couldn't help but to just come to a, some sense of a, you know, this is, you know, Praise God, you know, maybe we should just stop and sing a hymn right now uh, just to praise the Lord for that. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, sort of the connection of the Trinity and doxology and, and how this is a doctrine not just to be, well, kind of put it in the language of our, of our theological seminaries statement here that this is a doctrine that is satisfying. It is a mind for truth, but yet also gives us a heart, heart for God. Do you have any thoughts on the doxological aspect of the Trinity? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this kind of brings us back to a question that we started with in terms of the goals of systematic theology. The ultimate goal of systematic theology is, is that we might know the subject matter, right? That we might uh, love the subject matter uh, that we study, which is the triune God. There's a number of, of different ways to, to get at this, but, you know, the place that Augustine comes to um, after his conversion to Christianity is that the, the Trinity is, is really the deep secret, not only to the meaning of the world, but it's also the deep secret of human happiness and fulfillment. And so you think of how he begins his confessions, right? The very first thing he says at the conclusion of the first paragraph, you, and he's speaking of the triune God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Well, finding our rest in the triune God, learning to rejoice in the triune God, that's why we were made. That's why we were redeemed. And so uh, this doctrine is ultimately a doxological doctrine. And then also, it also addresses one of the, the kind of big challenges of teaching on the Trinity, right? Because as soon as you just talk about, start talking about one God and three persons, folks almost immediately realize, well, hold on, how does that work? And uh, a lot of people will try to come up with analogies for the Trinity. And unfortunately, those analogies tend up being kind of good analogies for Trinitarian heresies rather than analogies for the Trinity. But then, you know, folks say, well, where does that leave us? Well, this is where doxology comes back in, Peter, I think. Um, so the Gloria Patri, the doxology, uh, some of our great Trinitarian hymns, Come Thou Almighty King, you know, many, many different examples. What's fascinating about uh, these kinds of um, both ancient and more modern songs is that they very accurately encapsulate the basic grammar of Orthodox Trinitarian teaching. And they do so in a way that even a little child can, can sing them, right? The doxology is something our kids have been singing since about the time they could talk. And, and you say, well, they don't understand what it means, but but I don't understand what it means. I've got a PhD in Trinitarian theology. I don't understand what it means. Uh, my goal is not to comprehend it. My goal ultimately is to make sure I'm following what scripture says about it. And my goal is to adore the Trinity. Well, if I can learn when I'm a, a little child to sing the doxology, then already from the beginning, I'm on the right path. Uh, you know, our kids can learn to, to go out and, and play soccer on the playground. Right? Our, our kids can learn a tune to their favorite song on the radio, and they can do that without knowing any of the laws of physics that underlie baseball. They can do that without understanding any of the underlying laws of mathematics right, that govern music, and yet they can follow a tune. Right? They, can, they can hit the right notes. Well, that's, that's the goal in Trinitarian theology. We, we want to learn to follow the tune that Scripture plays. And we don't necessarily have to, to grasp it. And far from kind of being a secondary thing, that's the point of the doctrine, right? To learn to follow the tune, to, to, to praise this great God who was our maker, our redeemer, and our sanctifier. There are so many implications to everything that you just said, Scott. We were just leading the uh, Paideia reading group. We met for the last time this past Saturday. And we were really struck by what Augustine was doing with Genesis, especially in the last three books of mm. Confessions, right? And what I try to show is that if you follow a strictly grammatical historical reading of the Bible, we're not reading it like Augustine was reading it. Mm -hmm. It's not an Augustinian reading because what you're seeing in Augustine, what you've already pulled out as well in this podcast, is that the biblical texts are theologically deep and thick and rich, and you could dive into you know, Matthew 20, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and you will see a whole world of meaning underneath it. And what triggers me the most, I think, you know, I'm reading a lot of analytic theology as well right now, is when folks say that the scriptures are theologically underdetermined, that there's, <laughs> yeah. 
that it's metaphysically and philosophically underdetermined. And so we have to do the work to supply the meaning for ourselves rather than see what's in there in scripture. And I think what this, what you have done, I think, in, in reminding us all of these things is that scripture, like Augustine saw it, is, is just so full of meaning. It could go on and on theologically exegeting it. There's so much we can say about that. So why do these analogies continually break down? Can you give us, can you unpack a little bit? Why is it that the analogies that we propose for the Trinity continually fall short? Well, I'll give an example and then I'll kind of give the theoretical critique, you know. So if you think of one of the examples that's very commonly given, the Trinity is like water, which is at one moment liquid, another moment gas, another moment is a solid. Well, that's fine, but that really well illustrates modalism. It doesn't well illustrate the Trinity because what you're saying is the same thing can be in different forms, but it can't be in those different forms at the same time. (laughs) The reason I think it breaks down comes down to really something rooted in the creator-creature relationship. So Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1.26 says that God made us in his image. And among all creatures, human beings kind of preeminently resemble God. But if we look at the rest of scripture, scripture suggests that the entire creation in some way has a, uh, to varying degrees, a resemblance of God. And this is why God can describe himself using almost any of his creatures, a rock, a lion, um, and so forth. So, Creatures image God. Creatures resemble God. The problem comes when we think we're going to return the favor and say God images us. Well, actually, Scripture blocks that move, okay? And so you think of Isaiah chapter 40, where the Lord is beginning this series of chapters where there's a kind of discourse with the idols, the nation's gods, and he's going to humiliate them because they can't predict the future and so forth and so forth and so forth. But one of the things it says right there at the beginning of of chapter 40, to whom would you liken me? And to what would I be compared? And the answer is supposed to be nobody, right? Paul in Athens in Acts 17, you know, he he points out three errors in uh, kind of Greek popular religion. One is that they think God is containable. The other, they think God is dependent. But the other one is they think that God is like us. And, 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 and the reason Paul quotes one of their poets is to say, no, it's actually the opposite. We're like God. So there's a, a very famous patristic theologian, kind of early medieval theologian, who's named after someone in Acts 17 named Dionysius. And the illustration he gives, he says, it's appropriate to say that a, that, a, that a picture is a likeness of the man, but it would be inappropriate to say that the man's the likeness of the picture. Right? Oh, you're saying the man is five by seven inches? You're saying he's two-dimensional? You're, you know, no, it's a one-way likeness. And so that's what's the problem with analogies of the Trinity. It's not to think that there's some similarity between us and God. God is tripersonal. We're personal. And there's a similarity there. Um, and, and there's a million other similarities. But it's wrong to then start with what we know about the creature and project it upward, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening with these analogies where you're thinking of the egg, <laughs> you know, the three different parts of the egg, three persons of the Trinity or something like that. We're, we're using the creature as the kind of archetype and trying to make God the ectype of, of the creature rather than seeing it as God's the archetype and the creature's the ectype. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can use the... 17th century language. Gray let me use it. He nodded. I get the uh, I get the limitations involved in the egg, but what about like an avocado? <laughs> Tommy, I can't believe you'd bring such an abomination up on, on this, what was to this point, a peaceful, friendly conversation. Some, some not only do avocados some not resemble anything holy, but that... I'm not convinced that they existed before the fall. Uh, That was the, well, it could have been the forbidden fruit for all we know. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. I I think there's a good case to be made for that archaeologically, but also just from one's taste buds. (laughs) 
So some might say that that guacamole has tomato, onion, and avocado. Is this is this kind of three in one? Swain, is there is there a nature it, of guacamole-ness? It, it's perhaps an unholy trinity. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's an unholy trinity, and and I can see where you're going with this. That yeah, so guacamole is kind of like the antichrist and the and the beast. And, the beast. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can see or the that. three colors of the candy corn. I, you know, all of these, <laughs> I guess, corn. fall down oh in one way or another. Goodness, please tell me y'all are not in the in the bag for big candy corn. <laughs> Actually, we have a whole bag as a Christmas gift to send your way there. Uh, candy corn. Uh, no, I mean, that's from not... your mailbox to my trash can. Colored in avocado it. green. <laughs> it's how we're going to pitch this whole conversation. You know, people are kind of interested in, in the trinity but they want they want the food takes from scott well, swain we live in a lost culture want. they want they want clarity from strong leadership and i'm here to give strong leadership on it's what the kids want the kids that is what them. they want dr I'm swain so lost i think it's we've regressed been... just mildly but um gray is gray is just a little bit more sanctified than the rest and is not on twitter he's on gray's no fun <laughs> gray needs to relax I'm totally dependent on people sending me tweet links. So if you got links so that I can understand the subtext to all this, then, then you let me know. We'll send, we'll send you some URL links. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter discussion. Gray, Gray doesn't follow your more serious work. <laughs> right, right. Which leads us to the second part of this conversation. now. As much as uh, Dr. Swain here loves the Trinity, he hates avocado and candy corn. Yeah, because I'm righteous and, and I have somehow somehow likes abilities. Can I can I ask one last question about the Trinity? Is that all right? <laughs> one last question. One last Land question. The plane, no, but I, all of that about the avocado is also equally interesting, of course. But so, what would you say to someone who would respond back and say, "But hey, you know what? The Bible is just theologically underdetermined. Everything you just said about the Trinity, it's all just you know speculative." What would you say to that? What, was, what would be your response? What should be our response? Yeah, I, I, I just think it's the reverse. Um, one theologian has used the, the language of a saturated phenomenon. That is something that actually has a surplus of meaning and of sophistication. And that um, this is how we should understand scripture. It actually... It's it's not that it doesn't say anything about being, right, or goodness. It actually says so much about these things, and that our theologies are are just trying to provide a kind of secondary uh, summary, just to make sure we can follow the the basic message of Scripture. And so, uh, no, I think you know Warfield said it so well. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity is presuppositional for the apostles. It's not that you just have places where you get little, you know, hints at the Trinity shining through. It's that, it's that no, everything they're saying, they can't introduce a letter without introducing it in a Trinitarian way. They can't conclude a letter without concluding it with a Trinitarian benediction. When they're going to do a doxology, Trinitarian, when they're going to summarize salvation, Trinitarian. And so what this reveals is that the Trinity has so profoundly shaped the way they think and speak, right, that, that they're just effortlessly fluent. And so what we're doing in our Trinitarian theology is just trying to catch up with the grammar, make sure we understand the language, and to try to fathom the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God that are revealed in Scripture. So I, I, I just, I really don't buy that argument at all. I think it's the exact opposite that's the case. Amen. Dr. Swain, thank you so much for your time this morning and just for this conversation. Thanks for your contributions to this topic and systematic theology and uh, your collaboration in training up pastors and teachers for this work. And it's been a great conversation. Uh, we'll have you on again to talk about mayonnaise, but in the meantime, uh, it's been great. Mayonnaise and Miracle Whip. Yeah, thank you guys. It's been a real pleasure, uh, a joy to, to talk with colleagues about these things. And for those listening at home, thanks for joining us for this discussion. And please join us again next week for the Faculty Podcast. Mm-hmm.
excellent. Thanks, Tommy, for bringing up avocados. I thought, I thought we wanted to get it in there. That was a good spot. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I'm here to speak the truth. <laughs> Contramundum, <truth>. if necessary. <laughs> Contramundum. <laughs> I'm kind of scared now because That's I actually bad. like avocados and I feel like I'm kind I of like in the avocados. right now. I, I, like avocados. Great. I, spent, I spent my Saturday making uh, guacamole. So don't worry, man. You're Did you know that in Thank Indonesia, uh, a dessert that we have is to mix avocados with rum and chocolate. Is that right? That's right. It's actually Why a would sweet you chocolate. It's actually a sweet uh, avocado is, is not used in savory dishes here. It's used in sweet dishes. So fun you know, fact. Wow. wow. I, I like everybody's like that's wild, but it's like every everybody. I can go there with you. I might I might be trending towards Scott's view of things. <laughs> I'm here to bring the international flavor here, guys. Come on. I like avocado. No, no, no. I like guac, but I don't like avocado. Is that does that make any sense? I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. Are you saying that there's? Are you saying that there's subordinationism within the Trinity? 